know you're behind this, God, but I'm just not sure. I have some doubts. And last time we spoke about this, Gideon was told by God, okay, just to give you a little bolster of, of confidence, I want you to go down to the Midianites' camp and sneak in, and I want you to listen to a conversation that's going to take place. So he goes down there, and he gets down there, and he overhears one of the Midianite soldiers telling a dream about how they got beat, how they're destroyed, and the other soldiers are saying, yeah, yeah, that dream in that, of that barley cake coming down and wiping out our tents, that barley cake is Gideon. He's going to come, and he's going to wipe us out. These 135,000 men are afraid of 300. God is at work. God is doing something that, that is totally phenomenal, that he's putting a fear of 300 men into the 135,000. And so Gideon goes back and he says to the troops, chapter 7, verse 15, he says to them, when he returns, he says, hey guys, we're going to win. Look what he says, it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation, he returned into the host and he says, guys, get up, wake up. For the Lord has delivered into your hand the host of the Midianites. Do you see the, the tense he's using? Past tense. It's already done. It's decided. We're going to win. And he gets the troops up. They're waking up. And he says, okay, here, we got to go. God is at work. God is doing something. And so he's got great confidence. Now that's where we pick up the story. How he starts putting it together. Let's just define it this way. That's your background. Going through and just plotting the story. Here's the battle. He gets the people up. Now you got to think with me who the people are, the 300 that are with him. The 300 men are people who are fearless. Remember, they didn't leave when the other, others left because they were afraid. They have faith that God is going to deliver them. They're focused. They're the individuals who already displayed that. Now, they don't know how they're going to win the battle. Maybe some of them are thinking, you know, just a, a generation or two ago, God made the river of Kidron River swell, and that's how Barak and Deborah, that there was a supernatural movement within the water and the storms that helped us defeat the enemy. Is God going to do something like that? They don't know. They don't know any of the battle plan. They have no idea what's going to happen other than they believe God is going to do something. They believe that God is going to do some special participation in some way that they're going to win the battle. And so here they are, people who are faithful, people who are fearless, people who are focused, and Gideon gives them the battle plan. They haven't heard it yet. Can you imagine if you're part of the 300, you're, you're, you're brave, but you're looking around and saying, there's 300 against 135,000, I guess we can do it, if we have a good battle plan. And they gather you and they say, we're going to hand out the weapons. And they start handing out the weapons, and when they start handing them out, they're not going to give you a machine gun, a bazooka, or a tank. I would have confidence in those. They're not going to give you horses or chariots. In fact, they're not going to give you a spear or a sword, a bow and arrow. They're giving you nothing that is normal. In fact, the story goes on. It says that he divides the 300 into three... Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're 300 strong, and now he divides you up against 135,000. And then he gives you the weapons like a pea shooter here. He says, he put a trumpet in every man's hand with em empty jars and lamps or torches within the pitchers. And so here's my battle plan. I'm going to go into battle with a clay, clay pot, a trumpet, and a torch. These guys are really brave. Okay, got to admit, they're, 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 it's phenomenal that they did it. 
and they're going to go into battle and in fact they're divided up and 300 are going to surround 150,000. Okay? So you're kind of, you're, your ranks are thin. And you're going into battle and when the cue comes, here's what you do. You blow the trumpet, you break the pot, and you wave the torch. This is the battle plan. Just stand there, yelling, the sword of the, of the, the, sword of the Lord in Gideon. Oh, by the way, they're not even using a sword, but they're yelling, the sword of the Lord in Gideon. And he tells them, don't do anything else, just stand there yelling and waving the torch. Now, to you and me, that's unconventional warfare. Okay? The Pentagon would, would kind of say no to this battle plan. You know, Trump would probably text against it. You know, something, it just wouldn't work. This it doesn't make any sense. But then again, does God sometimes tell us to do things that don't make sense to us? Yeah. And so here they are. The plan is laid out, and the attack comes. The attack is laid out as you continue through the story, which is phenomenal. I mean, it's just... It's really cool because we know the ending. But it goes on, he says, He said to them, Look on me and do likewise. Behold, I come to the outside of the camp, and it shall be as I do, you do. When I blow the trumpet, all of you are with me. Blow your trumpets. I hope they're on cue. And so Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch, about 10 a.m., uh, 10 p.m., okay, that they're going. And so uh, uh, most of you at 10 o'clock are still awake. But back then, about 10 o'clock, they would be, uh, had already gone into sleep. And so it's the middle of their sleep time. And the guards are just changing, so you have a shift of guards who some are very tired, and others are trying to get the sleep out of their eyes to stand watch. And it's about that time when there's a little bit of movement taking place that Gideon and the troops get on the upper heights, and they blow the trumpets, and they start yelling, and they break the clay pots, and they wave these torches that now the embers are lit and they can start waving. And it's going to terrify the people. The animals are going to be terrified with all the noise. And he says, stay up on the hillside. And he goes on that the three companies blew the trumpets, break the pictures, held the lamps and the trumpets in their right hands to blow with all. And they cried the sword of the Lord and Gideon. They stood every man in his place round about the camp. And all the hosts ran and cried and fled. They never go down. The pictures show how they run into the midst of the troops. That's not accurate according to scriptures. They stay at the heights. And they leave just one area. As they, as they surround them, they leave the, the one area open. It's like a horseshoe shape of a surrounding. And so it's the idea that the Midianites have an area to get out. And the way that they're going to get out is head east, back towards home. And so they blow the trumpets and the enemy's response is phenomenal. The enemy in dead sleep, already with a supernaturally induced fear that has started to permeate the camp. The enemy wakes up, they hear the yelling, they hear the screaming, and according to verse 22, they start hacking one another. They start attacking one another. In, in, in that moment of slumber, any movement becomes the enemy. Any type of, of, you know, somebody near you, you're afraid and they're slashing, they're cutting, the animals are going, you know, nuts, uh, as Pennsylvania Dutch would put it. They're, they're just, it is mayhem. It is confusion. Confusion to the point that of the 135,000, between this time and the time they get to the river, 120,000 uh, of them are dead. And they're, most of them are dying at one another's hands. This phenomenal victory. Phenomenal how this happened. Absolutely 300 against 135,000. Folk, that doesn't happen. 
This is a God thing. This is something that is amazing. In fact, the Jewish troops, as we read about the account, that they, the Gideon's going to have to follow this up. We read as the text goes on, the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh, and pursued after the Midianites. That is probably part of the other 32,000 that had left, that they rally back to Gideon now that the, the backbone of the Midianites is broken. They come and they help in the aftermath, in the cleanup campaign, in the slaughter as they flee. And as the Midianites take off and they're headed towards the east, they're trying to get away, so let's do it this way. They're headed east, they're trying to get out of there, and Gideon sends a messenger ahead of them to the Ephraimites. And he tells the Ephraimites, could you head them off? Before they go back where they would cross at Beth Bara, go, you cut them off, stop them. And some 15,000 are left and they need to be stopped. And so the Ephraimites, they put up some type of a, a stoppage point and they're going to help in the slaughter and the execution of some of those who are trying to escape. And so they get involved with this. And Gideon's going to catch up to the final troops in a little bit. But the Ephraimites who hadn't come before this point. The Ephraimites join in and they help stop the 120-some thousand that are, that are whatever numbers left. They didn't get killed in the initial slaughter. They stop, they start stopping some of them and they capture two of their princes. Two of the Midianite princes, they're called Oreb, as you read the text, and Zeb. Their nicknames literally mean the raven and the wolf. Those are battlefield names. Those are fellows who they've earned some type of warrior status amongst their people as being cruel, being you know, vicious, being see, stout warrior, warriors. Well, the Ephraimites, they beat them. They beat their troops. And they help to whatever degree, I don't know, until there's, like we said, only, uh, only 15,000 that are left across the river. So this battle has, has been going on since the time that they blew the trumpets through the next day and the people are fleeing that the other 120 20,000 have dropped. Some way, somehow, by the, the Gideons, uh, by their initial killing one another, by Gideons following up with uh, the other 32,000 joining him, by the Ephraimites, they all, together they, they're wiping out the enemy. And so they come to a spot as a result of all this, there's only a small, small number. Now, a smaller number than them are left that cross the river. Now, stop in the story before we go any, for, any, any further in the story, and let's think about this. Let's do a little bit of just contemplating. This is one of the greatest victories in Jewish history. It becomes a part of Jewish lore that the Old Testament, that this is a phenomenal victory wrought by God. It is clear in Gideon's mind, we didn't do it. In fact, you'll see in chapter 8 and about verses 2, 3, 4, he makes a comment that God has done this. He is not about, when the fanfare is, is blowing, he's not about to enter in and walk down the red carpet that belongs to God. He is saying clearly, this is an act of God. I understand this is an act of God. God used us, but we were just the props. This was a thing of God. This was a God deed. And so he makes it very clear that God has worked. This is one of those passages that, that clearly portrays we walk not after the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That idea that Paul writes about our day and our age is so vivid for Gideon. He realizes that we didn't win, we didn't fight by conventional means. We, this, was, this was the hand of the Lord. 
Same thing for us today. The spiritual battles that we face against our Midianites, they are works that God has to do. They are achievements that God does. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he writes, God, who had commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, has shined in our hearts to give light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Paul writes, he says, it's all of God. It is a work of God. Whatever I do, he says, in my ministry, whatever I do through the word of God, it is a God thing. It is God working. It is God manipulating and operating and providing. And so he wants to make sure that we in this day understand like Gideon of old, it's the Lord. The battle is of, is of the Lord's. The Lord does the work. And so I pull and stop and say, okay, what does this teach me? What, what can I walk away with this week? What can I think about? When you and I face overwhelming challenges, in which we do, we face some conflict. Some of you face some real big challenges from classmates or coworkers that are opposed to your faith. Some of you are threatened by job loss or loss of friends or, or a fellowship because of your faith. What do we do? What do we do? How do we, when we face the opposition, when we face the obstacles, we need to do several things. One is lean upon the Lord. Trust the Lord. Just lean upon him and understand if God be for us, who can be against us? It's God. It's a God thing. We need to lean upon him. We need to do exactly what he says we're supposed to do. Even though it doesn't make sense to us at times. Even though we, it's not following conventional procedures. I was just thinking, hearing an article, here's just as an aside, it was, there, was a, there was a program that was talking about how millionaires in America, how they operate, and what they get stressed out. And the millionaires in America as a whole, in surveys, they say that to, to reduce the stress, they need at least $8 million annually for an income. Okay? That would reduce their stress. Okay? Then the comment from that article went on to say that of those folk, very, very, very few give monies. And, and when they do, they give such big gifts as 25000 or $50,000 a year to charity. That's conventional wisdom, that they shouldn't give more than that. And here, the majority sit of believers and they go, how do I make my bills? How do I keep up with things when I give God 10%? How does this work? It's a God thing that takes care of it. It's something that's beyond our explanation. It's unconventional by the standards that the financial experts lay out. God does work in those areas that we don't fully understand. The thought, we need to trust in his power. We need to rely, when we give out the word of God, do we have to do something extra to make sure it's working? No, we trust in his power because when God gives us orders, he goes to work. He gave Gideon orders. Says Gideon, go down there. And while he gave Gideon the orders, he was already behind the scenes maneuvering, manipulating, and creating the, the fear that was going on in the camp. I look at this, and I'm amazed by this thought. God can use anyone. A Gideon who is a man that you and I would say, talk about a doubting Thomas. Gideon was filled with it time and time again, yet God uses him. God using just 300 individuals to make a big difference. It's amazing. 
God uses common instruments, common tools to achieve his purposes. I don't understand how he can use something so simple as a pen. I don't understand how he can use something so simple as a sling. I don't understand how he can use something so simple as a song to make a huge difference. I don't know how God can use somebody's website or their Facebook, but he can use common things given to him to do uncommon deeds. That's the God we worship. The God that we serve, he is amazing. He is able to do above all that we can imagine or think. This is the God we worship this morning. This God can do profound deeds, and he hasn't lost his power in the ages past. He is still the same God sitting upon the throne. So I look at the story, and I'm amazed. But then there's, there's a negative in the story. There's a blemish in this account. Everything is going so great, so good. Everything is phenomenal. And then we run into a dark cloud in chapter 8. In the midst of all this, you would think everybody would be excited. Everybody would be thrilled. Everybody would be jumping up and down. But that doesn't happen. In the middle, in the middle of the Midianites running, and some are still on the run. Their backbone has been broken, but there's still a danger. The war is not over. The battle is, actually the several day battle is not over. In the middle of this, some people start bickering. Some people start complaining. Some people start having issues with Gideon. You would think that people would come up and congratulate Gideon for the success of helping to free them from eight years of oppression. But that's not what happens. They come up and they criticize Gideon for the way he did it and what he had done. Chapter 8. It goes on that says, in starting at verse 1, The men of Ephraim said unto him, Why didn't you call us? Why didn't you let us know when you went to fight against the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. What, what's going on here? Why, what, you know, there's a group, the Ephraimites, who Gideon had sent a message to to come and help to stop the, stop the escaping Midianites. They did. But after they stopped them and they all collectively got together at the border of the Jordan River, these guys turn on Gideon. They start attacking him. They, they're upset. They chide with him. The word is really severe in the Hebrew. The idea is that they contend with him. It is almost to the point of fisticuffs. That they are verbally taking him up, down and they're vigorously upset and challenging him. Why would they do that? Now understand where the Ephraimites are coming from. The Ephraimites is a tribe. They were the largest of all the tribes now, of the 12 at this time. They're the largest. They are considered the strongest warriors of the 12 tribes. They, have the, they are the tribe that Joshua came out of. So they have history behind them as being the last time there was a leader in Israel who had everybody united. It was, the, it was Joshua and he comes from our tribe. So by right of succession, we are the top dogs. And you didn't call us. You didn't confide in us. You didn't, you didn't come and ask our opinion. In fact, Ephraim is the site where the tabernacle is, whether it be at Bethel or whether it be at Shiloh. Ephraim is the tribe that houses those spots that are basically the capitals of Israel. The, the, the religious centers of Israel. So they think that they have the wherewithal to be able to lead, to be able to be, ad, be advisors, to be able to be involved in this, 
in this whole situation. And they're mad at Gideon because Gideon didn't consult with them. Gideon didn't seek them out first and foremost above the other tribes. Do they have a legitimate complaint? Do they have the, something, a right to take him to task at this moment? I, I would ask you to consider this because I don't think they do. But I would ask you to consider this. If they were so noble, why didn't they start something in resistance over the last eight years? Why didn't they kick the ball off? Why weren't they the ones to start? If if, if you're the top dog, then act like it. If you want to be the leader, then why didn't you lead over the last eight years? Where were you? In fact, when Gideon sent out, according to chapter 6, he sent messages through all the region to come and join me. Why didn't any of the Ephraimites join him? Where were they when they heard, and they had heard about it, obviously they're upset about it, they had heard that they were gathering, why is it that no Ephraimites showed up in the first 32,000? Where were they then? They were the type of individuals that believed they needed a personal invitation. A pastor was telling me about, he said that he's got a split going on in his church. The reason is because some people are upset that there was a wedding that took place in the church and they weren't invited. And it's a really silly situation because the whole church was invited by, by a posted invitation, but some people didn't receive the personal invitation in the mail, and so they're very mad that they weren't invited. And the pastor saying, but you were invited, it was posted for everybody, but if you really wanted us there, you would have sent us the personal invitation. And because of that silliness, the work of God is all of a sudden in this one community is suffering a great defeat. Well, that's the Ephraimites. If you really wanted us to come, why didn't you send a special messenger just for us? And Gideon's response is, I mean, how do you respond to some things like this? Some of the criticisms, and so what, what just and it boggles me. Why aren't you the Ephraimites? Why aren't you happy at his success? Why are you pointing out a slight flaw in what you think is a flaw when you should be congratulating him? He just broke the bondage of the Midianites who have been bothering you for the last eight years. Wouldn't you think they would say, "Thanks for helping us out"? Wouldn't you think they would say, we appreciate what you've done for us? But they're upset. They're mad. They're jealous. They're critical. And instead of giving God the praise and God the glory, they're mad that they didn't get treated a certain special way. You know, can I make some observations that all of us need to learn? Just some unfortunate observations of life that go this way. In times of great ministry, Opposition does arise and frequently arises from within. Uh, Go through the book of Acts. First of all, in the book of Acts, they have a lot of the persecution coming against the believers from outside. Instead of stopping them, the leaders who see that these men are foolish and unlearned men, but they're turning the world upside down. And Satan, in his wisdom, he brings that outside pressure, but that's not what slows them down. The persecution, in fact, helps spread the gospel. But then, the attack that Satan uses is within. He gets the believers upset that their group isn't being treated as good as this group. 
that, they're, that the apostles are focusing on ministering the word and not caring the way they should towards this person or that person. And it causes angst within the body of believers that is in the middle of great ministry because some aren't being treated the same way that they think they ought to be treated. And there's division in the church over which widows are getting the most attention. And they have to stop everything and deal with it. Satan's clever in getting us to attack. Satan has is, is been at this job for years, getting people to turn one on another. <laughs> There's a story that comes out of 1700s, uh, uh, late, I'm sorry, uh, the late 1700s going to 1800s. French and England, France and England had conflicts, always brewing in some conflicts. And so there was a major battle that was coming up that they, the British fleet was planning, and they were, they were getting ready to do an assault and so any day this captain of the British ship thought he would get his orders to join the fleet. So to get his men prepared for the upcoming battle, he decided that he would go close to the, to the you know, coast of France, and he knew of an old fortress there that was up on the rocks. And that fortress was there, but it wasn't well, well manned. They didn't have large cannon. He could stay off the offshore, and he could practice target shooting at the, at the fort. But they couldn't reach him back. So he, uh, he got a ship there, he parked there, and he had his men shoot. And on the top of that fortress, that old French fortress, they had multiple statues of the saints. So he ordered his men to shoot the saints with their cannon fire. And so they spent an entire afternoon shooting at all the saints and trying to knock them down. Then, towards the latter part of the day, they got the orders that came through that they needed to join the fleet immediately. So on, en route there to join the fleet, they encountered a French battleship. They immediately lost. You know, I don't know why. They had run out of ammunition by shooting at the saints. Hmm. Yeah. Does that ever happen in real life? In the sense that people attack one another? Catherine Marshall is the wife of Peter Marshall, who years ago, he was called America's pastor, uh, was the head of the pastor over the Senate and things like that. And he's a lot of, lot of good material that they had written years and years ago that many found inspirational. She wrote in one of her stories about having an issue in her own life. And she talks about how she tried a one-day experiment that opened her eyes and made a profound difference in her own life. What she had done is she had been meditating in, through the book of Romans. And as she was going through, she came to Romans 14, and she came down to about verse 13. And the passage that she was meditating on for this few days was the passage, is stop judging one another. And as she was meditating on it, she started observing, and it bothered her. How much her friends and her close people around her, how often there was negative comments made about other people who weren't there. Other just, you know, critical comments. And it really bothered her. And as she meditated, it bothered her more. But when it bothered her that she made a critical comment, she would justify it as showing discernment, being wise. Until finally it just, it got to her and she thought, I'm going to try a one-day experiment. For this one day, I'm going to fast totally from saying negative comments about other people. I'm just going to guard my lips. I'm not going to make negative, negative comments about other people. And so she determined to do it, and she set the day aside. 
She started off the morning and she said it went great. She was at home by herself. Everything went fine until halfway through the morning she started thinking some negative thoughts periodically about this person or that person and she tried to put them out of her mind and instead pray for those people and and stop the negative thinking. She was going to really carry this through. I'm going to fast through, no negative comment. She joined her husband for lunch and when she joined her husband for lunch there was a couple other couples there that were together and she said it was a wonderful lunch with these dear friends, close friends, but she says I was surprised by the silence of one person at the table, herself. She said, I was so frequently tempted to say and to add something that would be a negative remark or criticism of somebody or something that came up, but I was fasting. And so I would guard my mouth and not say the negative comment. My husband turned to me a couple times and said, is something wrong? And she said, no. He said, but you're, you sure you're not upset? She says, no. I just, she ended up being so bothered, she said, by thinking through how much of her speech is negative comments. She went home from that lunch just really convicted. And as she went through the afternoon, she found herself, instead of thinking the negative, praying for these people. And the more she prayed for people who came to mind, the more she realized she should do something different. She said that day, was the first day of my life that I wrote several notes of thanks and encouragement to several people who had come to mind that would have criticized. She said, there was an argument that I had with one of my own children, adult children, that I had justified for a long time my position. She says, I called them, I apologized, and we rectified the situation. We had always gone along, but there was just that nagging, critical spirit that I had about that one conflict. She said, I ended up praying for several of the college kids that were away and doing... She says, I found myself by the end of the day being more considerate and caring for other people than I had in weeks and months. So she decided to continue her experiment another day and another day and another day and another day. And she tried to make it purpose in her life that she would continue to that 30, that 28th, 29th, 30th day so it would become a habit in her life. But she says it was one of the hardest things she ever did in her life. Guarding her speech from criticizing other people the way they serve the Lord. Huh. Satan's clever. You and I should realize that often the harshest criticisms we face come from those who stay on the sidelines. Those who stay on the sidelines until basically the battle is done. Then they run with all the ideas. Then they have the the idea of how you should work and how it should be done. Soft and such critics are more interested in their own interests than God's interests. What I'm saying by this is this. They were more interested in themselves, their feelings, than the task at hand. The task at hand was to defeat the Midianites. It still hadn't been completed. There's still 15,000. But they stopped. They were more concerned about their personal feelings in the middle of a job and they were more concerned about creating disunity than they were about unifying to continue the work that God had given them. These individuals are often more interested in getting the glory than giving the glory to God or other people who deserve credit. 
They wanted to be acknowledged. They wanted to be the ones that were giving, given the attention. Why didn't we get it? Why don't you just say thank you? Why don't you appreciate? But that is a very, very common denominator for those of us who find ourselves being critical at times when we ought not to be, that we follow these types of patterns. What's interesting to note is Gideon's response. In the middle of this, look at how Gideon responds in the middle of the battle. He says in verse 2, What have I done now in comparison of what you have done? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison to what you did? Their anger was then abated toward him when he said that. His response, if we, can, if we can just give several words to his response, it goes this way, controlled. He doesn't smack him in the face like you and I'd be tempted to do. He doesn't do that. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't respond by attacking back. I was reading a story of a preacher that some of you may have heard of. Dr. Charles Fuller used to be a radio evangelist. He's with a group of his friends, and his friends are saying, hey, one of our former friends is really criticizing you and taking you to task about your ministry and what you're doing. His response was, well, I hope God blesses him. What do you mean you hope God blesses him? Did you hear what we just told you? How he's attacking your personality, he's attacking your character, your integrity? He said, doesn't it bother you? Fuller's response was, oh yeah, it bothers me. It really bothers me, but I hope God blesses him. Well, how can you say that? And his response is a good response. Why should I let someone else decide how I'm going to react or act? Should I do what they're doing? Or should I bless them that curse me? You and I need to be controlled. Like Gideon, he was tactful. He found something to commend them. And it was legitimate. He's not exaggerating. They did defeat Oreb and Zeb. It is a fact. They conquered these two princes who were very valiant soldiers. And he finds it out, he points it out, and in humility. In humility, he doesn't toot his own horn. He doesn't even defend himself. He just says, what you have done is really phenomenal. What God has done through you is phenomenal. That's what I should be pointing out, is that fact that God has delivered into your hand. Not that you did it, but God did the work. God, God did it in defeating Oreb and Zeb. And then he's focused. Focused in the sense that he doesn't let them detract or distract him from the job at hand. The job at hand is still needs to be done. There are still some 15,000 Midianites who could rally and come back and attack and we've got to defeat them the way God said. So let's get back to work. Let's get to the task. And he's not going to quit because he's discouraged. He's not going to quit because of their comments. Rather, what he does is he's an individual that provides a good example for you and me in this sense. He looks and says the task at hand is more important than personal feelings. The bigger task, the task of doing a work for God is more important than my feelings getting hurt. And he displays that for us. He displays as well that keeping the unity in the body was more important than his own pride and reputation. The uniform, unity. I need the Ephraimites, he says. I need us to work together, not to battle each other. Let's keep on being united. Fine, you think, you criticize. Okay, that's fine, y'all. But God has really used you. 
and he schmoozes them over and he works with it because he's after unity in the body. He says giving God the glory and others their recognition is more important than being personally recognized. God has done this. You have done a great work. Thank you for your great work. If you don't recognize what I have done, that's okay. It's not about me. It's not about me getting the credit. It's not about me getting the the ovation. We're getting God's work done. And you have done a great job. He as well says, I want to get the job done. It's not about getting even with these people. It's not about smacking them. He's just, okay, let's, let's do the work. Let's just do the work and let's move on. Good example. Good example for the opposition you may face, the criticisms you may face from family or friends or relative, where you say, okay, but here's where I need to go. I just need to keep on moving forward. There's a, there's a true, true skeleton Fossil remains, if you look closely what it is, it's from National Geographic. It's two of those tigers called the saber tooth that they got locked in conflict. You can see the one's teeth went right through the leg bone of the other one to the point that it couldn't escape. They both are locked in battle in this fight. They both ended up dying because they attacked one another and it became so vicious. It it is like Galatians warns. You don't bite and devour one another because it doesn't work. Take care that you're not consumed. You and I take off, back off, stop, controlled, and let's move forward for the work of God. Let's, let's keep things going. That, that's not the end of it. He goes and he follows after. We, we already read. Gideon came to verse 4, came to the Jordan, passed over he and the 300 with him, but they were now faint. They're pursuing. And they're very, very tired pursuing after the 15,000. He said unto the men of a city on the other side of the Jordan, a Jewish town, Succoth, give, I pray thee, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they're faint. I'm pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, those are the two princes left of the Midianites. And the princes of the Jewish town, Succoth, said, wait a minute, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in your hand, that we should give bread unto your enemy, or unto your army, excuse me. And Gideon said, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I'm going to come back and I'm going, to, I'm going to take you to task. He went up thence to Penuel and spake unto them likewise, give my men who are famished, give us some food. The men of Penuel answered and said, as the men of Succoth answered him. They wouldn't get involved at all. They wouldn't participate. These two are Jewish cities. If you notice the location on the map, they're on the east side of the Jordan River, not where most of the Jews lived. But they lived in that territory, and they aren't going to help, help Gideon at all. Why is that? Were they afraid of the Midianites who lived next door to them? That's a possibility. Were they afraid that Gideon couldn't defeat them? That's a good possibility. He's got 300 left with them. Did they have some type of alliance with the Midianites. We don't know. We don't know. But this much we know that these fellow Jews did not at all assist in any way, shape, or form. At least the Ephraimites got slightly involved. Not these guys. These guys totally refused. And despite the rout of the Midianites, they questioned Gideon's ability whether he can finish the task. And so Gideon's going to have to deal with them, which he does. But here's the point that I want you to just think about the bickering aspect. The bickering from, from Gideon's response is this. They did not discourage him from the mission that God had given. He didn't quit. 
He didn't give up because they were not helping. He didn't get discouraged because they refused to lend a hand. They would have nothing to do with it. Nor did he get distracted from it. He had a job to do that God had given. He's going to do it. Despite the attacks, the bickering by some who were partially involved, by some who just wanted nothing to do with it. They were the outsiders, totally outside, and they were critical, but he didn't let them stop him. What an example. Tremendous example from the life of Gideon. But we take it all. Let's put the whole story together. What do we walk away with? What do we take away that says, this week, what do I work on? I entitled the message, No Room for Heroes. What I mean by that is these final thoughts. That you and I, there's no room in our heart to think that we are so heroic, so outstanding, so exceptional in what we do or have done for the Lord that all of a sudden we can do our own thing. There's no room for heroes. Each of us needs to always do what God's telling us to do. We need to obey him. And do what he says, not do what we think is best, not do what we think, think is fully reasonable, not do what we think conventional wisdom would be to, to do. We need to obey the word of God, do what God tells us to do, operate as if he's the total controller of what we say and do, because he's supposed to be. There's no room for independent heroic efforts where you and I are mavericks and all of a sudden elevate ourselves to the spot that we are outstanding. Watch me do my own thing. That's wrong. There's no room for heroes when we say this. Each of us should always put God's business above our own feelings and sensitivities. Now, do we want to be concerned about one another? Absolutely. Do we need to be focused to be concerned about the physical needs of one another? Absolutely. Absolutely. Silly, stupid illustration. Okay, It's more important that in this room, your comfort is more important than what's up here at the platform as far as heat and that type of thing. That's the way it should be because you have to sit and endure Okay, and be paying attention. I get to move around and can take care of things. But we should be sensitive to, to those types of things. And yet... Is there an extreme that sometimes we think others should be more concerned about me no matter what? Even at the expense of God's work, God's business? It's not about our egos being satisfied. Ministry, and when we come for worship, the worship isn't about lauding and, and applauding and, and giving credit, even though they've done a wonderful job. And we should say to the people, like the choir, the music people, we should tell them, thank you. But should they be upset if somebody didn't acknowledge their song? That, is that what worship is about, being recognized? Or is it about God's word getting out? Is it about the idea of when we do a neighborhood night? Is it about you being comfortable, me being comfortable? And so many of you have this great attitude. It wasn't about me being fed that night. It was about me ministering to other people. It's that type of attitude that is so critical and so important that there's no room for heroes. We're doing the work of God. It's not about us, others treating us the way we think we ought to be treated. It's always about working as a team for the ministry that God has assigned us and accomplishing it. Even if it's some discomforts for us, even if it doesn't, doesn't 
you know, show on our resume the way we think or others recognize. It's about bringing glory to God. It's about serving other people. It's about ministering and not being ministered unto. I was reading a true story about a pastor, a youth pastor. Pastor David is his name, David Stone. Recalls that when he was ministering in a town called Chively, he was the youth pastor at Shively Community Church. There was another church across town that he was friends with the youth pastor there, and that was called Shively Baptist Church. They're both Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, shared the gospel, pretty much the same doctrines. And yet there was a rivalry between the two groups, especially in the youth groups. When they would play in some competitions, there was a growing rivalry. And when they would do some camp and they'd go to camp together, summer camp, they would always pick teams to be against each other. There was just this fun, but it was a real rivalry between the two groups. Pastor Dave talks about the time that he is preaching through the life of Christ, and he comes to John 13, he talks about ministering. And as Jesus says, as I've done to you, do one to another. And so he came to the point where he said, I'm going to minister, I want you to minister. And so for this activity in the Bible study that they had scheduled for that Saturday, he said, here's what we're going to do. For the next two hours, I want you to break up into teams. You here, you teens here at Shively Community Church, I want you to break up into four, four teams or so, and I want you to go into the community and minister to the needs of other people. Wash the feet of some others and share the word like you can. You got two hours. We have some adults here. They're going to be your, your drivers. You go and do it. And for the next two hours, the teens went out and in creative ways, they ministered. They come back and then when they rally back at Shiva Community Church, they're talking. And they're excited. The teens are excited because they've done some things. They talk about how one group decided they'd go and they pool what money they had together and they bought groceries and took them towards one person who they knew was a poor elderly po- folk in the church and they went and they gave them some food and they helped that person in that regard. Another group said, we knew that there was a, there was a widow lady in the church. We went to her house and we offered to do projects. And we helped her in cleaning her house for those two hours and she really appreciated it. They talk about how one group said, we're going to go minister at the rest home. They're often ignored and people don't go and see them. So we went down for those two hours. We went room to room visiting with some of them and singing with some of them and had a great time. The final group comes back a little bit later than the others. And the final group is given their report. And as soon as they start giving their report, the group that was listening from the others went, ah, oh, because here's the way they started. They said, we decided that we would go over to Shively Baptist Church and ask the pastor if he had anybody in his church who needed something done for them. It was then that the others went, ah, oh, you went to the enemy. And so they said the pastor gave us a name of a lady in the church who was, you know, really in in desperate need of help. So we went to her house, and her lawn looked like, you know, it needed to be bailed. So we spent the two hours cutting her lawn, taking care of some of the things around her house, raking, and we had a great time. And what was really neat is at the very end, she came out, and she said to us, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know how I would ever do, get along without you teens from Shively Baptist Church. Well, Pastor Dave immediately responded, I certainly hope you told them that you weren't from Shively Baptist Church, but you were from Shively Community Church, to which the teens responded, we didn't think it mattered. They have a point, don't they? It's not about us getting the credit. It's not about us getting the recognition. It's about us doing what's right. Here we come and say there's no room for heroes. 
Each of us should always give God the glory for what he has done through us or others. It's not about you and I getting medals and getting recognition. It's about magnifying the God that we've come to worship. You and I have to constantly resist the urge to take credit. We have to constantly guard lauding ourselves. Should we appreciate and commend those who minister to us? Absolutely positively. But not engage in stealing, infringing upon, ever walking down the red carpet when the fanfare of the trumpet's blowing, we got to make sure we stay off his carpet. That we give God the praise. We give God the glory. We need to make sure that what we do at any moment, at any time, is praise and worship. Praise and worship. And giving God the thanks and the glory Let's go back to the song that we sang a few moments ago. And it's not number 50 in your hymn book. I'm sorry that that was there. It's a song that we have distributed a while back that many of you know, and it talks about giving God the glory and praising Him. Let's close by singing praise and glory to Him, to His name.